What if Jesus had never been born? What if 2,000 years ago, Mary had not given birth to a child in a place kind of like this? Would our world really be that different? I think for many of us, we shrug and we say, I doubt it. You know, I want to propose to you that we live on a very different planet today because the enormous impact of a single individual, a teacher who spent only three years in public ministry. Reminds me a little bit of uh, George Bailey from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I love that movie. George discovers that his life is connected to so many other events that he didn't even realize. In the same way Jesus, his impact, his teaching affects how we view medicine today, how we view the environment today, how we view the abolition of slavery and adoption, caring for the, the vulnerable and the needy. I think if George Bailey was with us today, he might share his story. He'd say something like, well, my, 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 name, my name is George, George Bailey. And, and well, you probably know my brother Harry. Harry went to war, and I, I uh, thought my life wasn't, wasn't worth living until this angel named... Uh, Clarence, yeah, I would get an angel like that. I once saw another angel, his name was uh, Bob, Bob Mason. Uh, he already had his wings, apparently got it from hugging everybody. So George, with the help of an angel, learns that his life really matters. It makes a big difference. His boss, the pharmacist, would have been imprisoned if he hadn't been there during a time of grief to stop him from making the wrong prescription. Good old Bedford Falls wouldn't have changed into seedy Pottersville, but for the impact of his life. His brother Harry wouldn't have been the war hero, because George wouldn't have been there to save his life when he was a kid. So in the same way, Jesus was born in a, a lowly manger. And because he came to earth, our world is a very different place. See, the angels said up in the stars, hey, uh, peace has come to earth. In doing so, our whole perspective on creation, on trees, on the ocean, on, on flowers, on, on the world around us was transformed because Jesus made this a very different world. And oh, what a wonderful world it is. Well, it is a wonderful world and part of our perspective on how we take care of this world comes from what, what Jesus brought and made popular around 30 A.D., and part of what we try and do as a church is we try and find ways to give back to that wonderful world. And so as I joked about in that video earlier, we joked about Bob Mason. Many of you know Bob. Many of you don't remember we had him up in Wings years ago. But today, Bob is 85. So give Bob a hug and say congratulations to Bob. Also, we know today is Veterans Day. So again, if you are a veteran, if you could just raise your hand, we would like to thank you for the way you gave of your service. Thank you, guys. Can we thank all the veterans for the ways they have served for us? Thank you for all our liberties that we have because of you. Another way that we as a church try and be generous this type of year is you see this big Christmas tree over here. We have another Christmas tree just as you come in the front door, and that's our giving tree. So all year round, we work with Interparish Ministries. We work with City Gospel. We work with Happy Church, back-to-back. Um, -back. We work with uh, Belize Medical Partners. So these are things going on all year round. But this time of year, we put all those together on our tree, ways that you and your family can take one of those ornaments off and find a way to give to all of the needs around our community, here, near, and far that we have, and the way that we help. So we'd love to be part of that in the spirit of Christmas. 
Well, today we are going to talk about God's view that Jesus made popular of how to take care of the environment. And let's start with the good news. This is not a political message. <laughs> Christians can disagree on global warming. I have scientist friends who think it's accurate. Some think it's propaganda. Christians can disagree on, even if it is the problem, what the best solution is. And whether this solution really helps or it's just an international tax. There are so many different ways in which Christians can diagnose the problems and solutions. But underneath all of that is a philosophy I want to talk about. That allows Christians and people of faith to say, we're here not to waste. We're here to take care of. We're also here to make things productive. But we're also here to put things in balance to the world God's given us. So how do we do that together? Well, first of all, let's start with the objection. There was a scientist, uh, environmentalist, who really wrote an important paper in 1967, and he said that what I'm telling you is absolutely not true. In fact, this article became the basis of a lot of thinking against Christianity starting in 1967. He said, basically, in this quote from the article, by destroying animal, anima, pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference. He said, no, prior to Christianity, people believed the animals in us were of one. That's called Hinduism or pantheism or animalism. And when Christianity made a distinction from that, we said, no, no, we're placed as something more important than the animal kingdom. And he said, and that teaching gave a license to people through history to exploit the environment and to destroy the environment. And he said, we've got to get rid of Christianity if we want to take care of the world. It's a pretty serious objection. And we're going to look at, is that really true? And I'm going to take on kind of a tour through the Bible of the different teachings from Genesis all the way to Revelation on what it is that God teaches about taking care of the planet God's given us. Now contrast this with another guy, very famous, his name is Stuart um, Pym. And he's a scientist, a researcher, and an animal activist specifically with endangered species. He won the 2006 Heineken Award, which is like the Oscar or the, the, um, probably the Oscar version in his industry for the work he's done for work in the environment with endangered species. And the New York Times was interviewing him and just talking about some of the most recent projects he was doing, and he described some of the work they were doing in Brazil. They were working with the golden lion tamarin, which is like a primate about the size of a cat that was endangered. The problem is in Brazil, one part of their habitat was here, the other part of their habitat was here, and there was about 260 acres of developed land in between that were keeping these lonely hearts from finding each other so that they could actually uh, continue to breed and not go extinct. So he raised some money, and par raising that money is he bought the 260 acres in between so the, the amorous could, tamarins could find each other, and they let that grow back up in the natural habitat and really save that species of animal because of the work he did in trying to care for the environment. They asked him uh, in the other stories, he said, well, I'm a little embarrassed about this, but um, in South Africa, there's a bit of a thug and a drug runner who was taking bribes from the illegal logging industry. So I got together some donors and we came to this thug and said, well, tell you what, how much are you getting paid for letting the illegal logging industry go? We'll pay you that plus 5% more if you stop the illegal logging industry. And so we found a way to stop the killing of the, the, the forests in that area by basically working with this thug. And the New York Times said, well, what motivates you to do the work that you've done all across the world? He said, well, I'm a Christian. As a Christian, I believe that God so loved the world, the cosmos, not just the people in the cosmos, but the world itself is out of sync with its creator. And what motivates me as a Christian to take care of the environment and take care of animals is my faith in Jesus. So who's right? Stuart Pym or Lynn White? See, Jesus brought this gardening perspective to the world. 
And this gardening perspective was, what does it look like to think like a caretaker of the world we've been given, to live like a steward of the world we've been entrusted, and to work like a musician in however we, we look at our life. And this idea comes from that very passage that Lynn White was criticizing out of Genesis. God tells us that he originally made the world like a garden. He told the earth to bring forth living creatures. And God made the beasts of the earth and everything that creeps on the earth. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image. The God was made in a unique place with God's image put upon him. And then said, I want you to have dominion over the fish, over the birds, and over the cattle, and over the earth. But not dominion to exploit it, but to take the product of the earth and make it into something productive. When we do that, we're reflecting his creator mandate. To take care of the environment, to use it for food, but not to exploit it or waste it. That this dominion mindset was this gardening perspective that God brought to humanity to take care of the world around us. So let's dig into that a little bit. The first thing is, is that first thing I mentioned was to, to think like a, a caretaker. I think there's kind of two views that the Bible doesn't hold. You know, one is kind of the romantic view you see in movies all the time, which is nature is always good and man is always bad, right? Remember Bambi? How dare anyone ever kill a deer? But if you live in Indian Hill, you live in Terrace Park, we know that because there's not enough of uh, using the meat of deer, you know, the deer have taken over, right? And so there's kind of this romantic view of nature that nature is always good and man is always bad, and the Christianity does not take that position, because we are part of creation. We are caretakers of creation. And, and uh, animals were provided for meat. On the other hand is this exploitive uh, position, which is that mankind is here. We can exploit whatever we want and get whatever we want. The Christianity critiques that side. It says we're not having a romantic view of, of nature. We don't have an exploitive view of nature. We have a caretaking view of nature. Again, that comes out of Genesis. A couple things that God says. God says, The Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden and said this whole world... I want you to tend it and to keep it. That that was as times we tend it, we help things grow, we make things more productive when we build a business, when we create something, but we also don't do it in a way that exploits the place. We tend it and we keep it. It's a gardening perspective. So years later, after this kind of mandate from God to be a caretaker, Jesus is born. And a kind of a famous Christmas passage, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and then it says, and the government shall be on his shoulder. So think about when a government is put in place, that administration comes with different priorities. So it says, when Jesus comes, when the son was given, he's going to come with a whole new set of priorities on how to care for the poor and care for the needy. Uh, he's going to come for a whole new way of thinking about slavery and how to abolish it. He's going to come with a whole new administration of priorities. And so as you come to follow this son and follow this child, he's going to come with priorities that revolutionize the world. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And this idea again flows out of Genesis. Let me show you one more verse here. Uh, next passage. In Isaiah it says, at the end of time, at the end of the world, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth which I will make and it will remain before me. So Lynn White and others have said, you see, Christians think at the end of time there's Armageddon, God destroys the world, why take care of it anyway, God's going to destroy it, so don't worry about it. But if you look at the Hebrew translation of the word new, it's actually the word renewed or repaired or restored, that this earth is going to be here forever. God's going to come and restore it and fix the things that are out of whack, take care of some hurricanes over here and some tornadoes over there. 
But God is going to renew creation, and he wants his followers to be part of renewing and restoring creation until he comes. It's actually a motivation for caring for the planet, not one for destroying or exploiting it. So I don't know if you know this name. I got a chance to hear this guy speak. His name's Joel Salatin. Joel Salatin. Um, he, he owns a farm in Virginia called Polyface Farm. And he is a character, if you've never heard him speak. He wrote a book called The Pigginess of Pigs. All about how to recognize the unique, uniqueness of a pig and the uniqueness of a, of a chicken. And to, to work with God's creation to bring the best. Now, in contrast to commercial farming, using lots of chemicals and fertilizer, he is part of the biggest movement organic farming probably in the United States. They are classic from farm to table. But they use a very unique method. He calls himself a, a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist. And no matter what environment you're in, he's going to challenge your beliefs on everything. And what they do is they don't use any chemical fertilizer. They literally move the chicken pen every single day. And because of that, the chickens naturally peck, and they work with how animals work in nature, and they try and partner with those natural tendencies. Now, at the end of the day, they know they're going to kill the chicken and provide for meat, so they're not against providing for food, but they try and work with free reign. But every day they're moving the chickens, so the chickens are not only eating on their farm, but they're also depositing manure on the farm to refertilize. Then they move it the next day. Then they bring in the pigs, and the pigs eat, and they produce the natural man manure that fertilizes then they bring in their bunny rabbits and their turkeys, and they're just constantly moving around doing rotational agriculture, rotational gra uh, grazing. And in contrast to other farms that are losing topsoil, they've been able to, without using unnatural chemical fertilizer, they produce 10 feet of fertilizer in addition on their farms in the last 10 to 20 years because of the way in which they're trying to partner with the environment to do the work they're doing. If you've never looked into Polyface Farm, it's just a fascinating study of a man who's a man of faith who says, I'm trying to work with creation, work with how God designed the pigs and the animals and the agriculture to produce the best kind of work in partnership with creation. Fascinating guy, fascinating guy. He'll challenge you no matter where you are on the spectrum. So what's it look like for us to say, I want to be part of renewing, restoring the, 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 the planet that God has given to me? What does it look like for me to, to be part of whatever world I've been given, whatever job I have? How can I be part of making it better and renewing it wherever I go? The second kind of major teaching of the Bible on this issue is the idea of what it means to live like a steward. That basically this planet, God has rented it to us, and we are his tenants or his stewards, and, and our job is to take care of this place. And here's where, again, Christianity is so distinct from maybe other philosophies or religions that says we, we turn nature into God. Christianity says we don't love nature as God, but we do love God through how we take care of nature. So again, remember I read this passage already, but unto us a child is born, and this government, the set of principles, the set of sense of priorities of his would then flow through those who followed him. And that he could have come as an instruction book, God could have come in any different way, but he chose to come in the form of a person and he says, I want you to learn that I am a person. God is a person. And you can love me by how you take care of the people you love, the family you love. When you love your enemies, you're loving me. You can't say you hate people and say you hate me when my image is on people. You can't say you, you love me and not take care of the, the planet that I've given you to live on. And again, when he came, it said the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ years later, it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The parents brought in the child Jesus. So again, when Christmas came, it came in the form of a man, a child. 
and that child came to say that matter matters. Now to understand that, let me talk about what the Greeks believed at the time. Because remember, Jesus came into a Greek-Roman world. The Greeks believed that matter was inherently evil. Your soul is good, matter is evil. What you do with your body is evil. Everything that's material world was evil. That was the belief, what's called Greek dualism. Christianity turns that on its head. God of the universe came into matter and he put matter on himself. So matter matters. How we take care of the matter, how we take care of the world, what we do with our bodies, it matters to God. This was a fundamental different way of thinking about life. How do we think about matter, people's needs, the things around us, the things we touch, that God truly cares about this stuff was fundamentally changed in the incarnation, which is the teaching that God became man. Let me give you one more passage of the Bible. This is an interesting one. Next, next slide. Jesus had said, as he's teaching the, the Old Testament Bible, the Torah, he said, remember what God's mandate was for all of us. Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of kids. Fill the earth. And while you're doing that, subdue, take care of, have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living tree that moves on the earth. I want you to be part of the understanding that you can see me in nature, you can find me in nature, you can even worship me by how you take care of the environments around you. Now, years ago, I was talking to one of our relatives, and they, and they recommended this book to me, and the book is called uh, In the Woods, Last Child in the Woods. Fascinating book if you haven't read it. The author describes what he calls nature deficit disorder. That there was a time that most of us spent a lot of time in nature. And all the psychology, all the research show that when you're in nature, when you're engaging in nature, you're calmer. You're less stressed. There's just something about walking in the woods or being around flowers that allows you just to connect with something soulish. And over the years, you look at the patterns, we're spending less and less time in nature, less and less time around nature, and we're just busy all the time with our electronic devices all the time. We just no room just to sit and meditate. And the impact of that on us, on our children, on our grandchildren, is that we are suffering from nature deficit disorder. In fact, this was fascinating. He said in the 1950s, the average child could travel five miles away from home without having to call in because there's no cell phones anyway. Five miles. Just a couple decades later, it reduced to a child could be a mile away. Probably growing up, I could probably be a mile away from my house. My dad could whistle, and I could hear it a mile away at my friend's house. We could be a mile away walking in the woods, building clubhouses, a mile away down in the creek bed without, uh, out, of, out of mom and dad's sight. You want to guess what it is today? It's about 50 feet. It's about 50 feet. A combination of fears, some of which are founded, some of which are not, of kind of overly protective of our children because of our belief that you know, they're going to be abducted or things like that because of the evil in the world. Partly that's because of the schedules that we all keep. There's just less and less time to be out in the woods. Part of that also is related to, according to the book, the way in which we've designed our cities. The cities are designed where there just isn't as much time to be around in nature, to build around bike trails. A lot of things we have in our community aren't normal in a lot of places or cities in the world. So in his book, The Last Child of the Woods, he says one of the ways we need to connect with ourselves, connect with our souls, deal with stress and anxiety in our life, is to spend more time in nature. Now, this is not a Christian book. It's a secular writer noticing some patterns of what happens when we're not connected to the world around us. Now, this really is a, a picks up on some themes that the Bible describes of what it means to be a steward of God's care, God's love, and God's promise. 
What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at God's care. The Bible says here, this is coming from the book of Matthew, Jesus giving a sermon. He says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Are you strung with worry or anxiety? I talked to several doctors here in our church who said anxiety levels are at an all-time high in their practice. Combination of COVID and fear and stress and pressure. She says, if you're struggling with anxiety and fear and pressure, and we all are, and he references the wisdom of nature as a way to reconnect and calm ourselves. So what he says, he says, look at the birds of the air. You need to spend some time looking at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. When you meditate on the, the ways in which God has created a circle of life to provide for the animals, it will actually remind you that there's a heavenly Father who cares for you. He then goes on, he says, by the way, you need to spend some time in the lilies of the field. When you notice the flowers, their colors, the, the way the water cycle works, there's something about that will get you in touch with your soulishness, Jesus says. However, there's also this idea that you are stewards of God's wisdom. There's wisdom to be found out there. Did you know that when you're walking through the woods, when you're connecting with nature, there's wisdom to be found? When Job is going through a terrible time of suffering... God appears to him and tells him he should go ask the beasts. Go ask the birds to find some wisdom. Look what he says. Job, ask the beasts. They'll teach you some things. Ask the birds of the air. They will tell you. Speak to the earth. It will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain it to you. There's just things you can observe in creation that will settle you, that will teach you. There are things to be learned. In fact, we've done several series at our church about this very thing. We did a series called Safari about all the different animals in the Bible years ago. We did another one a couple years ago called In the Wild, where we just studied different animals to see what we could learn about God from them. Now, one of the most stunning things in the Bible when it comes to this is actually teaching the Bible of God makes a promise. There's a kind of a word in the Bible called covenant. And God makes a covenant with creation itself. Usually you make a covenant, like it's like making a deal. Like you live in a covenant maybe. You make a covenant, you're not going to build certain things. You're not going to have flamingos in your front yard or whatever. A covenant, right? Neighborhood covenant. Now God makes covenants with Abraham and covenants with people. But in the book of Genesis, he makes a covenant with the earth itself. In fact, if you're reading the Bible, the, the, the top of the section usually says God's covenant with creation. Noah built an altar to the Lord, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's evil, heart is evil from his youth. But this is cited as a covenant with creation. That God says, things got so bad I had to wash away a lot of the evil to restart because of the way the world had been corrupted. But I'm making a promise to creation symbolized through the rainbow that this kind of curse and devastation will not happen again. Interesting. Living like a steward, what, what if you began to see the world as a place that you were renting out for a time and you needed to give an account for how you took care of it? I was reading a book years ago, and the book is actually called Celebration of Discipline. It's kind of a classic book about spiritual habits. And the writer, writing from, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago when he wrote this thing, he describes the discipline of simplicity. And it's funny because as you're reading the book, it's what every realtor has ever told you. Right? As soon as you go to buy your house, what does the realtor say? Get rid of half your crap. 
right? So you stuff stuff in the garage, you stuff stuff away, you try and make it look like the closets are much more open than they really are. You try and shove the, 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 the extra uh, lazy boy and the extra couch uh, away someplace. And you get your house ready for sale. And what do you always think to yourself? I should live here. <laughs> this is such a nice place, right? And the discipline of simplicity is a couple things. Number one, we're one of the few cultures in human history that simultaneously wants and wastes at the same time. That was foreign. If you want, you're not wasting all through history. It's only in actually our culture we simultaneously want and waste. The other thing he challenges us to in simplicity is to learn how to enjoy something without owning something. There's nothing wrong with owning things. The Bible is very supportive of property rights. But can you also enjoy things without having to own it? I remember I was reading this book probably oh, 25 years ago. I was in my 20s. Um, a friend of ours had let us use his condo down in Destin. And so we're sitting there. We're enjoying it. We're, we're eating some, some shrimp, peel and eat shrimp. And my buddy turns to me. He's like, you know what? And it's been a great week. Yeah, it has been a great week. Enjoying the beach. Enjoying. You know what we need to do? What do we need to do? We need to own a place like this. And again, sometimes owning a place like that is a good investment. There's nothing wrong with that. But I remember at the same time thinking, well, is it okay just to enjoy something without having to own it? Because as all of us know, when you own something, it comes with expenses. It comes with hassles, right? Every time you think it's going to be you know, perfect, you find out it comes with its own, its own challenges. What would it look like for us to be a steward and realize we are temporary residents here? And whatever we own, we want to manage it well. And how can we enjoy things in life without always having to own them? And how can we get around this scenario of always wanting to want and waste at the same time? Be a steward, to live like a steward of this planet. Now, the last thing I think is fascinating, and this is a little bit more challenging. I think this kind of sticks us and leans into us a little bit more, which is what does it look like to work like a musician? The opening to the Bible, God tells us that he wants us to work ourselves, the way we think about life, the way we think about our rhythms in life, like a musician. When he describes his creation of the world, it, it's like a song with a chorus. And the chorus is, it is good, it is good, it is good. So the very opening chapters of the Bible, God says this, God made the heavens and earth. He made the light, and he said, oh my goodness, that is good. There's a chorus to the song. And God called the dry land earth. He gathered together the waters of the sea, and here comes the chorus, and God said it was good. Line after line, chorus after chorus, you can hear the music of God creating the world around him in joy and in wonder with this rhythm of it is good. And then he makes mankind in the final stanza. Go to the next slide. And, they, and he, that God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. This is kind of the bridge to the, to the final crescendo of the song. And then on the seventh day, God rested. Now, God did not rest because God's worn out. Satan, here's the work. God doesn't need to rest. God rested to take a moment to enjoy what he had done, to enjoy what he had made, to realize that you and I don't need to be a machine that's always productive. There's a time just to rest and to enjoy and to bask in what's around us. Think about a piece of music. If it's all quarter notes, that's fun, but it'll wear you and everybody else around you. 
And many of us have lived our life with quarter note after quarter note after quarter note. Rather than having some half notes and some whole notes. And many of us, if, if I put a piece of music to your life, would there be any rests in your music line at all? Let alone a whole rest? See, the way music works and the way God created you is the way he created the world, that you are designed to have moments where music is loud and moments where music is soft, moments where the music goes, goes fast, but also moments that you rest. And you tell yourself, you, you remind yourself you're not a slave to your technology. You're not a slave to your productivity. You can sit and enjoy the things you have done. You work like a musician knowing that the balance of quarter notes and rests makes life that much richer. I told you this one would be a little more convicting. If you wrote a piece of music to the rhythm of your life right now, are there enough rests? And what would it look like for you to take a 15-minute block from your phone, to take a moment to take a walk in the woods, to sit back and enjoy what you have rather than working on something else you think you need. Now, I mention this because God says not only do we as human beings need to work in this rhythm of rest, but it's also how we treat the land. He says, God tells us, I want you to treat the earth like a piece of music. It also needs to have rhythms and notes, but also rests. So in the book of Deuteronomy... He's describing how he wants you to take care of the land. And he repeats this in the book of Leviticus. So this is kind of a reoccurring theme, and then it'll pick up again in Jeremiah. I'll just tell you about that in a second. So here's what he says. He goes, as you're working the land, thinking about the way you're being productive, the way you're working the productive things in your life, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land will also need to keep a Sabbath. That's weird. It's like the land wears out. Maybe. Six years you can plow your field. Six years you can prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But I then want you to give a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. I want you to give every seven years a chance for the land to re-nutrient itself, replenish itself, and restore itself. In the same way that I want you to know you were built for music and for rest, the land was designed for music and for rest. In fact, it's interesting because years later, the nation of Israel goes through a pretty rebellious phase. And it's during that rebellious phase, God says, I want to send you to Babylon. So the nation of Babylon comes in and conquers them. And they're kept for 70 years for a whole bunch of things they did wrong. But when asked, why 70 years? God says, because you did not rest the land for 490 years. And I'm grabbing my Sabbath back for the land. Take 490, divide by 7, you get 70. So the Babylonian judgment was actually designed because they had not treated the land the way God had asked them to treat the land, by resting it occasionally and putting those rhythms in place. So I had a call this week with a guy named Jim who goes to our church. He and his wife are botanists, and they, they've been volunteering here. You've probably been greeted by them many times. Um, they work in our children's ministry as volunteers for many, many years. And he began to describe his perspective as a botanist here in our church. They bought 60 acres of land that their house is on. And he said, I really have a passion for removing invasive species so that the land can kind of restore and look like what it was designed to look like. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, you go up to, to Maine and you want to say, like, 
shouldn't Maine look like Maine? Let's take out the things that don't belong in Maine so its natural beauty can occur. And I'd like Southern Ohio to have the beauty of Southern Ohio with its natural plants and natural environment. He says, so what my wife and I have done is we love going out and working, and we feel like it's our expression of God. We love God. We love what we do. We, we are just connected to God as we are creating a space, a 60-acre space in our land where we can just recreate how God's designed this place to look by removing invasive species. And I mentioned that to him because of something I'll tell you about in just a second, which is as a church, that's something we've been committed to. I mean, we want to challenge each one of us. I don't know which one of these points hits you most today, but what does it look like for you to be an undergardener? Imagine there's a main gardener of the universe, and he says, I want you to, to be my undergardener. I've given you a wife and a family. What does it look like for you to care for them but not exploit them? What does it look like for you to feed and nourish the family members I've entrusted to you? What does it look like for you to make sure there's enough rhythms in your family's life that you have musical notes, but you often have times of rest? What does it look like for us to not have nature deficit disorder, but to spend some time just reflecting and being? What does it look like not to always need to own more and waste and want, but to really enjoy and be content as an undergardener of your property, as an undergardener of your business, an undergardener of your family, of an undergardener of your relationships? What does it look like to think about your entire life like a garden and say, what would it be like to treat and live and work with these rhythms in my life. Now, you may not know this, but when we built this property 12, 13 years ago, we were seeking LEED certification for being an environmentally friendly building. And if, if you may build, maybe you build many things, there's gold standard, there's silver standard, and there's bronze standard. We aimed for gold. We wanted to be the first church east of the Mississippi to have a gold standard eco rating of gold on the LEED certification. And so we did. Our team worked very, very hard in designing this building and this property that we got gold standard, all, this, all the, the details we needed to get, all the points needed to be the first gold standard building this side of Mississippi. When it came time to pay for the certification of that, it was an additional million dollars. We're like, you know, we got the points. We'll spend that money somewhere else. So we stewarded the money for the, uh, for the paperwork into other areas of ministry, people and places and environments here. But when we designed it, we designed it with all the points to get gold. And we've just come across a brand new endeavor to continue that, that vision for our church. So starting the uh, next couple months, we're going to do some brainstorming on an ecology project we're doing with the church. So we have partnered with Cincinnati Nature Center. And they're going to come down with us, work with volunteers. And they're going to begin to look through our property, get rid of the invasive species, begin to plant natural species so that this can continue to be a sanctuary. Many people are here, you've walked over the lake, you've been to our baptism services, you've felt that connection to God and connection to nature in this property. We often call this whole property a sanctuary because of the sacredness of just walking through the woods or walking by the creek or walking by the lake. And if you're passionate about that idea, loving God through the nature around us, we invite you to come to uh, our ideation meeting on Sunday, November 20th at 945 and say, hey, I want to be part of that. I got thoughts for that. We want this to be a space, not just for church services, but a place that people can walk in our community and just sense God's presence. This property that we, we prayed for and we paid for so it could create space for people to have a, a, a soulish experience with God. So we ask you to join us. In fact, when I was talking to Jim this week, he was so excited that some of the things he's doing in his personal life with his own 60 acres, he could be part of helping us do as a church. So we invite you to be part of that. Jesus has a fascinating thing he says in Matthew. 
He says, here's the purpose to your life as a follower of mine. I want your light, the way you live, the way you love, the way you prioritize your life, I want your light so shine before other people that they see your billboards? No. Your Christian radio stations? No. They see your good works. They see how kind you are to your spouses. They see how you love your neighbor. They see how you run your business. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they say, what makes you different? And you tell them and they glorify your Father in heaven. We want to be a church that lives in such a way that people see our good works, see our light, and are drawn to our Heavenly Father.